Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now take a look at Ephesians chapter 5. This section of Ephesians, as we're coming to the end, there's only six chapters, is a section that focuses on the practicality of the theological truths that he has just shared in chapters 1 to 3. Now, if you turn back to chapter 4 just for a moment, something that I recently noticed as I was rereading this book. When you get to chapter 4, after Paul has told us all of the wonderful blessings we have in Messiah, all the blessings we have received by the grace and power of God, it is not by works, but it is by grace that we have been saved. And salvation is a package of all kinds of good stuff. And if you look at verses 1 to 14, you can see all of those good stuff as he explains some of that in the succeeding verses. But when you get to chapter 4, because of all the things the Lord has done for us, we are to live a different way. Now, living a different way does not merely mean that we have a different kind of moral code than some of the other religious or philosophical convictions that circulate around us. The scriptures is not about morality as such, although it's a moral book. In other words, we oftentimes think that because we've come to faith, we need to change our life. And we think that somehow our life changes over time through a drifting into a place of more moral significance. But that is exactly what Paul does not say happens. We do not drift into morality. Rather, we have already been recreated for it. And therefore, it is to be the natural manifestation of our relationship with the living God. But he tells us, if you look at chapter 4, the way our life ought to look, what it ought to look like. And one of the things he tells us is that we ought to live in unity with one another. This is what he said at the first part of chapter 4. So he says, make every effort, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So one of our responsibilities, one of the ways our life is to be lived is to be in unity with one another. We're to live a life of oneness. And why? Because there's one Lord, one faith, one immersion, one God and Father of us all. We've been brought into this oneness of reality. 
And therefore, it is to be reflected in our relationships with one another. So we're to live a life of unity. Look at verse 9. He then begins to tell us that this unity does not mean that there isn't some kinds of diversities. It doesn't mean we all become the same. It doesn't mean that we all have the same necessary focus or interests. But it does mean that with all of our uniquenesses and differences, we're to come together in the power of the Spirit to manifest God's will in our fallen world. We are one body but with many members. We are one body with different gifts that we bring to the body for the benefit of one another. In fact, he says, so that we would build up one another. That's the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit of God. One of the purposes is that we would build up one another. We would encourage one another. We would provide what is lacking in another that the other might fulfill all that they feel called to fulfill. And thus Paul will say in Galatians, bear one another's burdens. So we're to live in unity. Look at verse 17. He then tells us not only are we to live in unity, but we are to live in holiness. Verse 24, put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Later in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, be imitators of God. Here he says, we're to put on the new self, which is created so that we might be like God. How are we to be like God? He says, by manifesting righteousness and holiness, purity of life. This is done not by somehow straining to be good, but it is done by putting on the new man. That is, putting on the new life that we're already clothed in. The imagery is like putting off old clothes and putting on new clothes. The new clothes that we have, we already are in. The Lord has already dressed us in the clothes that he wants us to wear. We are to live in light of what we already are and who we already have become. So it's not trying to be something we're not. It's being who we really are and not what we have been in the past. So he says we're to live a life of holiness. Look at chapter 5. What is our life to look like, having been greatly blessed by all the great blessings God has given us? It ought to, we ought to be ones who preserve the unity and enhance the unity and encourage the unity. And in doing so, building up one another. We ought to be ones that live a holy life, a righteous life, as God has explained and described for us in these pages. Not by means of some kind of self-motivation, but by means of allowing the Spirit of God to have control over our lives. This is an important point, because Paul will tell us we are to be filled by the Spirit. We talked about this Thursday night, Floyd, didn't we, at the study at Santa Clarita. We are to be filled with the Spirit. We talked about it there because what's interesting in the life of Messiah is that we're told that his ministry was conducted by the power of the Spirit. Luke's 
Luke's presentation of the life of Messiah is a presentation of a life lived in the power of the Spirit. He makes reference to the Spirit more often than any other writer in all of Scripture when you combine Luke and Acts, which are the two books he wrote. And so he's describing and he's trying to help us understand that our life, like Messiah, must be lived in the power of the Spirit, yieldedness to him. To be controlled by the Spirit, or I should say to be filled by the Spirit, means to be controlled by the Spirit. That's why it's in the present tense in Greek. It means be continually filled. Because we always need to be controlled more and more as the Lord takes up greater, I don't know, this is a weird way to put it, residence in our lives. As we yield ourselves as living sacrifices, he controls us more and more. Therefore, Paul says, always be continually filled. Very different than the terms that Paul uses when he speaks of being immersed or baptized by the Spirit. There, it's in the aorist tense. There, Paul says, there's a moment in time when you've been immersed by the Spirit into the body of Messiah. It happened in a point of time. And the aorist tense means when there is that point of time, there is ongoing ramifications of what just happened. So Paul says that when we were immersed by the Spirit into the body of Messiah, it happened at a point in time. It happened when we invited the Lord into our lives and we became believers and children of God. That very moment you said, Lord, forgive me, come into my life. He responded. He immersed you in the body of Messiah and the ramifications of that are ongoing in your life today. But the filling of the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit, needs to be something that we continually seek the Lord to do in our lives. It isn't a moment he does it. It is an ongoing moment he does that through our lives. But we have to yield ourselves to him. If we do that, what kind of life do do we live? We live a life of unity. In the body of Messiah. Where there is disunity is not the filling of the Spirit. Because the Spirit's work is to produce unity in the body. Where there is diversity, the presence of God's Spirit as filling and controlling the individuals in that body is not at work. Because if he is at work, unity is the result. Not only unity. Because Paul is not just talking about the individual. He's writing to the believers at Ephesus. He's using the second person plural words, you all, as they would say in Dallas. Not just you, but you all are to be ones who contribute to the unity of the body by the means of the spirit of God. This is a corporate effort, but each part is significant and we're A part fails, the whole body is affected, just like anything else in our world. When you have gears and a gear is out of place, all of a sudden the machine doesn't work. If there are machines that have gears these days. When we're putting together, or uh, Edward is putting together all our sound system, if there is a cord that's out of place, The hums begin. 
The distortions occur, and the sound goes crazy. And we say, what's going on? It could be just one small thing can set the whole thing off. One individual can send a whole body off. All you have to do is look at the book of Acts to see that that is true. When you read about Ananias and Sapphira, one couple who said, we will give whatever we have to the body of Messiah, and they don't, judgment hits the body and them particularly. All you have to look at is the book of, the book of Judges. Here's Joshua bringing the people into the promised land. One man takes stuff from Jericho that he shouldn't, and 40, 50 people die at the battle of Ai. It doesn't need a whole lot of disturbances in order to create a whole lot of problems. The evil one can use one in a very powerful way for the destruction of the whole. Simply eating from the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has set the whole creation into a tailspin so that the wages of sin is death. Think of that. And so one thing out of place, not pursuing the filling of the spirit for the unity of the body will only result in disunity and chaos and harm. So what ought the body to look like? It ought to be a body pursuing unity. It ought to be a body pursuing holiness as we saw before. Here in chapter 5, look at the first verse. It ought to be a body, a life pursuing love. Live a life of love just as Messiah loved us. And we spoke about the nature of that love that is manifested in just how Messiah loved us. But then look at uh, chapter 5. Look further in this passage and he says in verse 8, that we are not only to live a life of unity, live a life of holiness, live a life of love, but look at verse eight, we are to live a life of light. He says, live as children of light. And thus by nature, we are to expose darkness. That doesn't mean we all have to get on our soapboxes and criticize everything that's going on in the world that we don't like. But it means that by your life, you shed light in the dark place and in a dark world. And so we're to live a life of light. We'll come back to that in a moment. Look at verse 15. We're to live a life of wisdom. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. The need for discernment. The need for a thorough knowledge of the word of God. The need for devotion in prayer. That the Lord would open our hearts, open our minds. And move upon our wills. That we would live in conformity to the very fullness of the revelation of God's word and God's ways. And thus a life of wisdom. Look at verse 22. We're to live a life of submission one to another. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. There's to be a mutual submission of one to the other. 
Our families need to come together and to grow as families, husbands and wives, but all people in our body. He tells us in verse 6, our life ought to be a life of obedience. Children, obey your parents. Parents, obey, uh, be, uh, don't exasperate your children. Don't frustrate your children. All of us who are parents have struggled with that one for sure. Slaves or servants are to be obedient to their employees, employers. And employers are to treat their employees kindly, generously, compassionately. And last, we were to live a life of prayer for the battle. Look at verse 19. He says, pray for me. Look at verse 20. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, the good news, as I ought. And then, of course, we ought to live a life of peace. Verse 23, peace to the brothers, because that is the result of the filling of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, as one of the fruit, fruits of the Spirit. So this is Paul's point, sort of summarized and laid out for us. If we've received the wonderful blessings that God has had, then our life ought to reflect it in unity, in holiness, in love, in wisdom, in manifesting light, in being submissive one to the other, being obedient, and being prayerful. Those are the things that Paul is emphasizing. The result will be peace that passes all understanding. Now, take a look at these verses just very quickly as we bring our service or this message to a close. Look at verse 3. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. The Greek word here is what we get the word pornography from. I think it's the word pornos. We get the word pornography. The word here means to speak of a broad range of sexual misconduct. There are really two things Paul's concerned about in this section. He speaks about sexual immorality, and look at this, or of greed. Some say covetousness. As I was reflecting on this, sexual immorality and greed are really very much the same thing. They're personal fulfilling gratifications to the exclusion of others. In other words, sexual immorality is really selfishness on a physical level. And greed is selfishness with our possessions. And so Paul says... And to the Ephesians, this is really remarkable because the city of Ephesus was an extremely wealthy city. And here he's telling them, you need to deal with greed in your life. This is the problem of the wealthy. It's not only the problem of the wealthy. It can be the problem of all of us with, the, with what it is that we do have. The fact of the matter is, when we think of greed, we really don't think of ourselves as greedy because we evaluate ourselves on the basis of the social state that we live in. And we basically say, well, given my status in life and the occupation I have, the community I live in, I'm not really all that wealthy. But ask people who visit the United States from other countries and they come to our homes and they say, oh my goodness, look at all of this. 
simply what we compare ourselves to. But nevertheless, with what we have, we need to be giving. And so Paul is concerned about greed. And in Ephesus, which was very wealthy, he was concerned about that for those believers. And if you think about sexual immorality, oh my goodness, Ephesus was a hotbed for sexual immorality. You think Chatsworth is bad. You think L.A. is bad. Ephesus puts them to shame. Ephesus had a central worship place. And their priests were prostitutes. And people engaged in sexual immorality for religious purposes. I suppose that's true for many in our society too. They don't realize it, but what, what Paul says is, this is both greed and the other, but we're focusing here now. This is, he says, idolatry. It's a worship of false gods. It's a worship of false gods. Why? Because gods do one thing. They control those who worship them. All you have to do is look in the Hebrew scriptures and you see those that worship Baal. They were controlled by Baal. If they didn't sacrifice their children, they were afraid Baal would destroy them. And therefore they gave the most valuable things that they had. And they failed to recognize the significance of a life. Because the God controlled them. Even to the point that they would give up their own children. To this imaginary thing. Think about that. God's control. They take your life. And they do with it as they wish. We call that addiction. And that's what gods are. They make addicts out of individuals. They could be drugs. They could be money. It could be sex. It could be people. It can be anything. And it will be something other than the living God if it is not the living God. Because we are people who have been created to worship God. And if we don't worship the true God, we will make a God in our own image whom we will worship. But we are worshiping something. And all you need to look at is what is controlling you? What is your greatest fear? That is your God. That's why the scripture says we're to fear the Lord, reverence him, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why people who can sack money away for retirement are so concerned about it because they're fearful of the end of their days and they don't trust God will take care of you. And thus in that instance, retirement becomes our God. These are amazing things that we sort of just skip over. I feel weird even talking about them, but Paul has us on this here. And if you're going to proclaim the whole counsel of God, if we're going to face the whole counsel of God, myself included, we can't just skip to the last verse. Peace be to you <laughs> with love. We also have to go through the minefields here as well. But let me say this, the way to deal with the gods of our life is not by merely avoiding them, 
because they have ways of creeping into our sphere no matter where we are. The way to deal with them is what Paul keeps telling us. Be who you are, not what you once were. He says in this very same section, take a look at it. He says, you were darkness. Very important phrase because he doesn't say you once lived in darkness. He doesn't say you once were in the sphere of darkness. He says you were darkness. But now he says you are light. Therefore live as children of light. The way to deal with our gods is not to try to avoid them and put them out of our lives. It's about trying to get God into our lives and getting closer to him. It's about connecting with others that can help us be drawn into the presence of God. Because he dwells where the body is. He certainly dwells within individuals, but Yeshua makes the point. Wherever two or more are gathered, there am I in your midst. If you need strength, you need others. But those others must be living a life of unity, a life of holiness, a life of love, a life of submission, a life of light, a life of prayer. Otherwise, they will be of no value to you. And that's why it's so important that the body does what Paul is saying here. Because we're dealing with spiritual forces and wickedness in high places. And thus Paul says in chapter 6, we're going to need to take on the whole armor of God. And that's going to necessitate all of us helping one another. Now this is what he says. This is why we are to live who we really are. Look at verse 3. Because we are God's holy people. That's his first point. Notice Paul doesn't say, so I want you to get away from this, get away from that. He says, you're holy people. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. It doesn't mean to somehow be acknowledged as a saint. Although the word holy ones means you are a saint. Saint Gary. (laughs) Whatever your name is, Saint Throw it in there. Saint Serge. (laughs) Just no statues. But we are saints of God. We are holy ones of the Holy One of Israel. We are set apart from the world and we're set apart unto God. So why do we live as ones of the world? Yeshua says you are in the world, but you're not of the world because you are now light. You are no longer darkness. So why are you living as darkness? Why are you living as of the world? We are to live as children of God. That comes by the Spirit of God. We're not talking about morality. There are plenty of moral people out there who would put my moral life to shame. I am not proud of that. But we're not talking about morality. We're talking about the presence of the living God living his life in and through us. That's what the filling of the Spirit is. Unless Paul says, you are holy ones. He not only says that, but he says, you guys are kings. He says in the very same section that we are members of the kingdom of God. And one day, he says, we're going to rule over nations. 
He tells us in the book of Corinthians, how is it you cannot judge among yourselves? Don't you know one day you will judge the world? And we're living this life presently like we're peasants in the world by the way we live. We're not living as kings of righteousness and holiness. We're living as like peasants because we don't allow the Spirit of God to take control and full residence as he desires and delights in. Not only ought we and can we live this way because we are holy ones separated unto God and from the world, not only because we are already kings that are being prepared to reign with the king of all kings when his kingdom dawns. But he also tells us we are light in this dark world. Yeshua says, let your light shine. He doesn't say light the light. He doesn't say do what you have to do to shine. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see the goodness and that you may be able, therefore, to give glory to our Heavenly Father in heaven. So how does this all work? Let me share with you one final um, story. You, you can turn there if you like. It's in John chapter, Luke chapter 19, which is the story of Zacchaeus. Everyone that is five, six, and, and lower is their favorite character, their patron saint, Saint Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a short guy. He, may have, he must have been much shorter than me. In the first century, they didn't grow my height, did they? I was like tall. I'd be tall back then. But Zacchaeus was a short guy, but a powerful man. Powerful man because he was greedy. We know he was greedy because he wasn't merely a tax collector, but the text says he was an archetelianos. He was a head tax collector. He was one that had many tax collectors under him. He was the chief tax collector. So he's getting a cut from everybody. And tax collectors were despised people in the first century. It's hard for us to really imagine that because we don't have like tax collectors today, but they were collaborators with the enemy. They were like those people who drove the trains uh, filled with Jewish people to their, to their deaths. They were collaborators with the enemy. They were taking money and plus some from the Jewish people in behalf of Rome. They were hated by the Jewish people and rightly so if you're permitted to hate. Rightly so. But here's the most fascinating thing. At the last stage of Messiah's journey, he heads down from Galilee. He comes through by the city of Jericho and people are seeing him coming. They're thronging the streets. And Zacchaeus is a little guy and he can't see the Messiah whom he longs to see. So you would think, wouldn't the crowd just say, hey, Zacchaeus, here's a place, come right, you can stand in front of me. But no, 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 no. This is Zacchaeus. He's a collaborator. 
He's not one of us. He's one of the enemy. Don't let him see the Jewish Messiah. But Zacchaeus would not be stopped. So he climbs up a tree. When is the last time you've seen a lawyer climb a tree? Here he is with his suit. And he's climbing a tree. Don't you think people look at what a ridiculous sight that is? When's the last time we saw the president of the United States? I know we see him shoot shots on the court, making some, missing others. We know we see him in various contexts. When's the last time we saw him climb a tree? It's kind of a funny thing, isn't it? But there's Zacchaeus, perhaps the most wealthiest or one of the most wealthiest. Forget the dignity. He climbs the tree because he wants to see Messiah. And as Yeshua comes down the street, even a more amazing thing happens. Messiah stops by the tree and he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree because I'm going to eat at your house tonight. Now you and I would say, whoa, 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 hold everything. This guy is a Roman collaborator. How is it that you're stopping by him? He has cheated me out of everything. He's cheated our community out of everything. And you're stopping at his tree? You're stopping at the foot of him? And here's the most, more amazing thing. Zacchaeus does not invite Yeshua into his life. He doesn't say, Yeshua, would you fill in the blank? But Yeshua invites Zacchaeus into his. I'm coming to you, and I'm going to eat in your home. And at that moment, Zacchaeus is a new person. How do you know? Because when he gets the message... Right there on the spot, he says, 50% of everything I have, I'm giving away. 50%. Now, according to the Mosaic Law and to many churches, 10% is a lot of giving. But Zacchaeus is giving half of everything he has. And that, to those in need, and for the poor. Is that not amazing? When's the last time you gave half of everything you have to those in need? I dare say, we thought about this before, in many of our churches, if people just gave their 10% of what they have, financially, churches wouldn't be struggling at all. We struggle to do that. But Zacchaeus, at that moment, he experiences the grace of God, half of everything. And then he says he's going to give something like uh, four times uh, to the Lord from another source. I can't can't remember. Those of you that have turned, you'll see it. Some people have calculated it would have have come to like 300% of what he had. Why does he do that? He does that because he realized the grace of God that he received. He's giving out of God's grace given to him. 
our life is lived by not avoiding problems. It's lived out of gratitude for the grace that's been given to us. The degree to which you experience and appreciate the grace given to you will be reflected in your life, just as it's reflected in Zacchaeus's giving. For what is giving? It is giving of ourselves, which is what we saw earlier. Messiah, Philippians chapter 2, he did not consider his divine royalty and prerogatives such that he would hold on to it. But he gave it up, which is another way of saying he gave himself, not just what he possessed. The way to live, as Paul is describing, is by giving ourselves to God. Not merely by avoiding the problems or challenges around us. I agree, as James says, flee from the, uh, resist the evil one and he will flee. I understand that. But Paul's major thrust is that we've become new creations. And therefore, to the degree to which we understand what God has done for us, we simply want to give everything we have back to him. It starts with understanding these truths, and then it starts by taking inventory of the moments in our lives and evaluating ourselves, not each other, and saying, am I one who is contributing to the unity of the body by my actions, by my attitude, by my words, by my deeds? Am I contributing to the holiness and purity and righteousness of the body by my actions, by my attitudes, and by my deeds? Am I truly living a life of love? Is it seen in my actions, in my attitudes, and in my deeds? Am I truly one who is manifesting who I am as a new creation as light? By my actions, by my attitudes, and by my deeds. Am I truly one who is submissive to one another and willing to be obedient, especially as a child or an employee or whatever, to one another by my actions and by my attitudes and by my deeds? Am I truly one who is engaged in prayer, as Jerry and I were talking about this, not merely having prayer meetings, but by being a prayer, where prayer is in my heart, in my actions, and in my attitudes, and in my deeds. That's what Paul is striving for us, I believe, to understand and to embrace. And when we do, then the Spirit of God's presence permeates our own personal lives, but more importantly, our communal life as a body before the living God that bears testimony to the living Messiah dwelling in our midst by the living Spirit of God himself. 
Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your provision. This is about you and how you reflect yourself in and through our lives as individuals and as a corporate body. So we pray, Lord, that you might help us in our weakness. We pray, Lord, you would help us over time. We pray, Lord, that you would grab hold of each one of us individually and certainly grab hold of our body corporately as we seek to be light in a dark world, love in an unloving, hateful place, as we seek to be one in a world that is terribly diversified over sometimes race, over sometimes social status, over sometimes national allegiances. May we be a manifestation of unity and oneness. May we manifest your love. May we, in all of these things, may we manifest you, our God and King. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.